This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest, who will be heard across the EWT and Global Catholic Radio Network, will be philosopher Dr. Pete Colosi. He'll help us learn how to clearly and charitably speak to those who disagree with us about the morality of artificial reproductive technologies. You know, Dr. Colosi's previous episode, Tom, entitled How to Talk to People Who Disagree with Your Morality About Health, it's been one of our most popular episodes and our most downloaded podcast. So we knew if we brought him back, we'd be pumping up our ratings. And there you have it. (laughs) Totally self-serving. Nevertheless, you may learn something. So first, to set up the interview with uh, Dr. Colosi, I thought we would go into some of the nuts and bolts of the issue of artificial reproductive technologies. And since my co-host is an expert in reproduction, I thought I would ask Dr. Chris Stroud. So Chris, it's abbreviated ART, artificial reproductive technology. Is that just in vitro fertilization or is it even more than that? It's funny, that's a tricky term. And officially, according to the CDC, that means all treatments which involve the handling of eggs and or embryos, Mm. not necessarily the handling of sperm. So so so-called artificial insemination or donor insemination where a a, a man's sperm is used to be placed inside the woman's uterus or cervix, that officially isn't an example of an artificial reproductive technology. Only by definition, not by reality. That's correct, and not by morality. (laughs) Oh, that either, yes. But uh, ART really means handling eggs or embryos. Fascinating. Why the split? You know, I'm not really certain. I think there are those who would suggest that somehow donor inseminations with a donor man sperm is not technical, and therefore it doesn't doesn't count as artificial technology. You and I know that that it's immoral and it separates procreation from the natural marital act. Yes, but there are those who might disagree with us. Hard as that is to imagine. So, you know, you help couples who have difficulty conceiving. A wonderful thing that you do. So why aren't the various surgical procedures you perform or the hormones you give, why aren't those considered artificial? Yeah, good question and fair enough. You know, those of us who are dedicating ourselves to fertility restoration using the Creighton method and Napper technology and others, we're trying to right wrongs. We're trying to correct disease processes. If there's a disease process and it requires a surgery to correct, for instance, endometriosis, We're not trying to make the woman pregnant. We're trying to make her whole. We're trying to rid her body of a disease. That's vastly different than trying to make her pregnant. We don't make people pregnant. We just make them whole. Whether they get pregnant is between the man and the woman and God. I like that description. (laughs) Now, you haven't always been a Catholic when you've been an obstetrician gynecologist. So before your conversion, what involvement did you have with ART? Yeah, you know, I was pretty uh, stereotypically traditional OBGYN, you might say. And so I would do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. If the couple didn't conceive, I'd refer them off uh, to the IVF clinic, never really thinking what was going to happen there. Um, and when I first uh, started practicing OBGYN, or when I first converted to the faith, I should say, I wasn't a practicing OBGYN. So I, I wasn't I didn't have to deal with the conflicts. That's because you took a a hiatus over to the dark side of hospital administration. Yes, I saw the light and ran (laughs) towards it. Um, And then when I came back to practice, I was immediately confronted. Now a new, freshly minted Catholic and had to say, whoa, I I can't be referring men and women to see a reproductive endocrinologist. That's not right. I can't do it. I've got to find a better way. In uh, stage left comes Dr. Thomas Hilgers and the Creighton fertility model. So did you ever have any discomfort with what you were doing before your conversion? Did you even think about it deeply? Yeah, you know, I did, uh, as I think a lot of OBGYNs do, but they think they don't have a choice. Oh. Uh, There was no alternative. Sir, I feel odd about this. I think the thing that I can remember bothering me the most is what happens to the extra embryos? Okay. So in a given IVF in vitro fertilization cycle, uh, the physician may retrieve 10, 12, 18, 20 embryos. You and I would call those babies. Then they pick their two best. Now imagine- How do you- 
<laughs> exactly. Yes, I don't want to know. There's actually a rating system. They're either A embryos, B embryos, or C embryos. Oh, wow. And you pick the best-looking children or embryos, put them back in the uterus, all the others are frozen. And I used to wonder, I wonder what happens to those embryos. Now we know a lot of them were simply discarded. Some of them were used in experimentation and cell lines and other things. But I think that's one thing that that gets that will strike a lot of people and get them thinking, wait a second, what am I really agreeing to do here? And there's kind of a euphemistic name given to those frozen embryos, isn't there? Oh, well, now sometimes we talk about snowflake adoptions. Yes. I think that's what you're referring to. Yes. So they're all, you, we've had a show on this. Remember we had oh, yes. uh, Father Mike McCarthy. McCarthy. Jim McCarthy. Uh, yes, uh, from... Um, from the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Yes. He's their bioethicist, did his PhD in this work and talked to us about embryo adoption. So I'll bet today we have 10 or maybe more couples in our practice that are pregnant from adopting frozen embryos, having them put in their uterus, and now hopefully they'll become pregnant and raise those children as their own, just like I adopted two children uh, in my life. Uh, adopted children needing a home. We found a home for ours, and these couples find a home for theirs. And uh, as far as the morality of uh, you know, placing these snowflake embryos in people, from our understanding, the church is still not, you know, definitively stated. But when we have on our philosopher, it'll be interesting to hear what he says about this. Absolutely. How commonly do couples seek out artificial reproductive technologies? You know, there were about 73,000 babies born in 2015, the most recent year for which there's data. Uh, now, it's interesting, because of a, a law that was passed in 1992, all in vitro fertilization procedures and clinics have to report to a database that's kept by the CDC. And it's a public database. So you can go and look up what's happening at, at your local IVF clinic if you'd like to. Wow. Uh, but an interesting number, there are about a million babies born via IVF from 1987 to 2015. A lot of children. But if for every one of those babies born, imagine how many of their siblings are living in a suspended reality in a frozen state. Suspended animation. And is are there more types of artificial reproductive technologies than in vitro fertilization? Well, in vitro might be thought of as an umbrella term. Mm -hmm. So classically or traditionally speaking, the woman's eggs are taken out of her ovaries. Her husband's sperm are used to fertilize those eggs. And then two embryos are put back in her uterus. We could, uh, I, I say we euphemistically, yes. uh, reproductive endocrinologists could take another woman's eggs and fertilize them with this other woman's husband's sperm. Uh, you could use donor sperm. You could use donor eggs. You could use both donor eggs and donor sperm. Um, you can also do a procedure which is called ICSI, uh, which is a long abbreviation, where the sperm itself is actually mechanically placed uh, in an egg for men who have very minimal sperm and through a surgical procedure, some sperm can be obtained. So there is a lot of technology. Believe me, it starts to get very science fiction and very sort of ugly pretty quickly. So when a couple tries to conceive with artificial technology, what is the timeline? What happens? What are the procedures that this woman, husband, go through? Yeah, typically uh, a woman will be suppressed uh, hormonally for a short period of time, and then she'll begin to be stimulated with injectable drugs that cause her ovaries to not mature one follicle, but to mature many follicles. That's called controlled hyperstimulation. And then when those follicles are mature, each about two centimeters in diameter, a procedure is done through the vagina uh, with a needle, and the ovary is aspirated, and those eggs are taken out uh, of the ovary. Then those are placed in a lab in a Petri dish. Uh, the man's sperm then is treated in a certain way, and then live sperm are placed on those eggs. They're fertilized, and anywhere from three to five days after the fertilization, as I said earlier, the two best embryos typically are put back inside the woman's uterus. She goes home and waits for about 10 to 14 days, hoping to get a positive pregnancy test at the end of that period. The success rates of IVF, really tough to get your brain around. Uh, it depends a lot on the age of the woman. Uh, it depends a lot on how many embryos were put back in, how many cycles she's had. Listeners 
Consumers can look that up on the CD's website, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40% is a number that I hold on to per cycle. And how does that compare uh, to what you're able to achieve through NAPRO technology? You know, it's uh, it's interesting. There's some really good data that was produced through the Creighton uh, Institute, the Pope Paul VI Institute at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, that showed uh, case after case uh, IVF is inferior to the Creighton Fertility Model NAP- NAPR technology for couples that are struggling. And at first, uh, our physician listeners would say, oh, wait a minute, that's impossible. Prove that to me. Uh, the easiest way to explain it is many couples who get pregnant with IVF didn't need IVF to get pregnant. If we rightfully take them out of the database and then look at what's remaining, the success rate for IVF is much, much lower. Wow. Yeah. Something to keep in mind. So you have something healthier, less expensive, and not immoral. And consistent with uh, the teachings of the Holy Catholic Church. You know, I like to tell couples, any chance I get, you never have to choose between the tenets of your faith and your fertility. There is a better way. Don't give in to the secular message that says you have to go along this technological way because it's just not true. You just don't have to. Well, it's a natural consequence of those who think they have to control their fertility from the time they start ovulating with with birth control. And, you know, I, I think there's another message that we should get to our listeners and listeners should always try to use, and that is you may have a relative, a close friend, uh, who's had IVF and they have IVF children, uh, they're going to be tempted to think that you think less of their yes. children. Uh, and it's important to point out those are children of God. They had nothing to do with the sinful circumstance of their creation, but they're still children of God nonetheless. They still deserve uh, the same dignity and the same respect that all children of God do. Amen. Well, that's a wonderful introduction to our deeper philosophic conversation and how we will, you know, talk to friends and colleagues and acquaintances about this topic. So, Tom, we've talked to me, but now it's time to get a real expert. Uh, uh, (laughs) It's it's time to get a professional thinker. And we'll do that after posing the medical trivia question of the day, which, of course, is going to deal with the topic of in vitro fertilization. Of course. Why wouldn't it? Of course. I, I try. So, last year, 2018, the first of its kind study demonstrated the first detectable clinically relevant endpoint in children conceived through in vitro fertilization, meaning they discovered something that isn't quite as healthy in children and young adults who were conceived that way. So the question is, what is this medical problem that is more present in adolescents and young adults compared to people conceived naturally? And I'll give you a hint because I'm just feeling generous today. We covered this topic in a recent Dr. Dr. episode. We'll be back with expert Pete Colosi after the break here on Redeemer Radio's production of Dr. Doctor. And now we're back to our guest today, who is Dr. Peter Colosi, a PhD philosopher, a newly minted, tenured Associate Professor of Philosophy at Salve Regina University in Newport, Rhode Island. He is an instructor at the annual Catholic Medical Association Medical Student Boot Camp, and he was previously a professor at Franciscan University of Steubenville and St. Charles Borromeo Seminary in Philadelphia. Pete, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. It's great to be on again. You know, it's good for you to be here, and I want to uh, lead off this segment with a reference to a 1984 book by then-Lutheran pastor uh, Richard John Newhouse. He wrote a book called The Naked Public Square, and yes, we can say this on EWTN because the nakedness he was talking about was the loss of religious speech in public discourse. So, Pete, what would happen to our democracy, and listeners, what would happen if the most deeply held convictions of the American people, their religious convictions, were ruled out of bounds in the public square? You know, uh, Americans have to decide how to live together. So, Pete, what do you think about Father Newhouse's thesis that religious speech has become ruled out of bounds and that eliminating such speech impoverishes our culture? Well, he's right about that. It has been. It sort of goes back the philosopher John Rawls sort of made that become the way of thinking in politics. But nowadays, there are even some prominent, more so in Europe, um, atheists and agnostics, two of them are named Jürgen Habermas and Marcello Pera. And they're holding that they want religious voices back into the public 
square speaking in their own terms. And they're saying this because they're afraid, you know, that Europe is losing itself. And I don't know, uh, Pope Benedict XVI, before he became Pope, I don't know if you've heard of these books, but he wrote some books with those two guys um, because he saw a point of agreement, and they did too. And that is that Catholic social and moral teaching offers 2,000 years of proven wisdom to help um, structure a healthy society. But there's also a point of disagreement between them. And that is, as Ratzinger put it, something living can't come from something dead. So you can't just like slap Christian social and moral teaching onto society like scaffolding as a last last ditch effort to save it. Because those teachings grew out of a lived faith of Christians throughout the centuries. So Ratzinger added to what those guys said that we need what what he called um, creative majority, creative minorities, I'm sorry, of Christians who are living a rich faith. And when they come into the public sphere and speak, it will it won't fall flat because they're they're living it. So so we need to reinvigorate faith and the reason that sprang from it. You know, but yes, you're think, right. If, if 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 you can't bring that into the public sphere, we're going to lose a huge resource to help the common good. I think it's interesting that most would argue today that diversity is a fundamentally good thing, <laughs> but I think often yeah. they mean diversity of appearance. That they don't necessarily mean diversity of thought because. There is no diversity if I can't express my views that I know are different from your views. I mean, that's the beauty of diversity. We may be identical twins, but have vastly different ideas. And if we, I think it's fundamentally American to want to come to the public square and, and have vigorous debates over things. But it feels like societal leaders want us to stop those debates in the name of tolerance. Yeah, I think diversity and inclusion mean in those settings the exact opposite of what those words actually mean. (laughs) Pete, in Newhouse's book, he acknowledges that his evangelical audience, but I think it applies to us Catholics too, lack a public vocabulary that would translate our convictions into terms that non-believers could understand and engage. How do you think this is true? Well, that's another good point, and I'll comment on maybe the example of, of what happened back with the HHS mandate debate, um, which was, a, was, a, was at its high point in 2012. And um, that was a major news story for a number of years after that. And the U.S. bishops decided back then with one voice, which was a pleasant surprise to fight it. Um, <laughs> but, the, yeah, but the method they chose, in my opinion, and others was wrong. And if, if you look back, you'll see that whenever they were in any venue asked about it, they always made the assertion, this is about religious freedom, this is not about contraception, which at face value was false because the whole thing was about contraception. <laughs> and they, yeah, and they, they, were, they were afraid to try out even simple arguments in the public square that show the reasonableness um, of the Catholic view. And I and many others found that quite frustrating. Um, and I, I, I even cut the priests and bishops of 1968 era some slack on this, like the ones who are afraid to speak, because we know so much more now, as you were saying, Chris, with all the NAPRO technology and Creighton and all the different methods. And so that was a national teaching moment when everyone's ears across the whole country were sort of perked up thinking, what, the Catholic Church thinks something about contraception? So I think, you know, we they could have calibrated to each venue, but I don't see why they didn't talk about health risks or big pharma sort of ruining girls' fertility to get rich or about how many couples' relationships improved after switching to fertility awareness based methods or the side effects of the pill, which are many, cancer, depression, hair loss even. So they could have talked about how many naturalists or green people today are (laughs) chucking the pill because of its toxicity. There's a lot of them. And um, I know some of them, you probably do too, or or the blessings of children or how the charting methods can become a source of health benefits. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know where the, the zeal and love for these poor young girls and married couples uh, were. So there, there, I think, you know, we have, you were talking about faith in the public square and reason in the public square. And I think we have reasons that, everything I just said, you don't have to believe in God to grasp those reasons. Um, and I think we should be 
bringing those up in, in tactful ways. Yeah, uh, on, the jur- who, on the journey to, um, you know, fertility awareness, I always tell people, do, which I have two roads. I could get you there on the theological road or the biological road, whichever sounds right. more appealing. We're going to end up right. in the same destination. But you're right. You can talk about those things as you did. Uh, without without mentioning uh, religion. Uh, on another show here on Dr. Doctor, we, we had the head of Students for Life, and that was part of her advice, was not bringing the religious, uh, the religious aspects to abortion to the discussion early on, but bring it from personhood and from equality. And th- that sort of makes me think of this public vocabulary that you mentioned, that we need mm-hmm. to be able to to speak in that public square in a way that we're understood and not suddenly marginalized as as fanatics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. with regard to public vocabulary, one of the ones that people on our side have used, we term natural law, but people who disagree with us say that's just a religious thought in a Trojan horse. Are they right? Mm-hmm. Well, so that's interesting, like how you phrase that, and it relates to what we were just talking about. So... In many people's minds, the term religious, as in the phrase deeply held religious <laughs> beliefs, yes. carries with it implicitly the idea irrational mm. or even irrational nonsense. Yes. So that, it does. That's what people think of. So, so that's one of those hurdles we have to um, overcome. So it does depend on the venue and the person and the situation like that Student for Life president was mentioning. Um, and sometimes it is wise not to bring up religion at all. But we have to be careful of playing into the hand that um, religious views are just irrational, which is, I think, what that approach to the to the mandate, uh, it caused people to believe, oh, then contraception must just be a hokey, nonsensical Catholic thing, because they never heard, you know, why we think what we think. But, but on the flip side, we also don't want to be afraid to bring up religion. Like, even those atheists over in Europe and agnostics, Habermas, is saying he thinks religious voices should be able to speak in their religious terms. He used to think they have to always translate it. Hmm. Um, and now he thinks, no, just let them be themselves. He, he calls that an, an, an asymmetrical, uh, like an unfair burden that secular people, they can wow. talk how they want, but we <laughs> can't talk how we want. And he's, he's, he's now saying he's still a total atheist. He says he's tone deaf to religion, <laughs> if that's possible. But, um, <laughs> but now he wants, he wants, religious people to be able to speak in also how they how they speak and eventually we you know we do want to help people know god because ultimately um if there's no you know transcendent dimension or the next life and so forth where every tear will be wiped away the things we bring do are true and make the common good better but um i think we should also be free and open when when, when we can to share the, the but it's cer- it certainly I, I go back to my other my other thought about it being authentically American to have multiple views and yeah, to pr- protect exactly. one's ability to say what one thinks. Uh, that's why we have amendments to the Constitution. But it mm-hmm. it certainly feels like we're losing that. Uh, yeah. And, and to to the European example, you know, lest we end up in a in sort of a dead society without thought. Right. Well, Pete, I think we need to move forward to introduce the the main method at which we are to converse, which you call your charity and clarity method. And I mm-hmm. suspect you have honed this in teaching college Hello? students who are very Hello? difficult to persuade on topics, and they seem to be more permissive than those who are you know, older than them. So what have you learned working with college students that helps to discuss these difficult topics? So my first response uh, to that might surprise you. I'm, I'm not sure if this is a recent change in college students, but it seems to me that it might be. I find them to be searching for meaning in a sincere way. And I also find them, and I'm not saying this to be unkind, I find them to be complete blank slates with respect to Catholicism and scripture. And I'm teaching at a Catholic uh, university. So they haven't Um, been immunized against it, in other words. Yeah, right. I think, yeah, I think those two things go well together. So Mm. I teach philosophy, and I've been pleasantly surprised at how going through the works of Plato and Aristotle inspires students in ways they, like, they didn't expect it when they signed up for their mandatory philosophy course. Ah. And they're really, they're really wowed by the, by the depth of Plato and Aristotle and, and about happiness and a, and a morally good life and the common good and so forth. 
Now, with respect to the hot button moral issues, I do cover some of those. And if I'm not doing a whole course dedicated to that, I usually save those until the end of the semester so we all know each other better. Sure. And, and they're familiar more with, um, with philosophical thinking. And then, yes, I've developed this thing called clarity and charity, and I explain it on day one to them. And charity means listening. It means listening so attentively to a person with whom you disagree that you can relate back to that person, their view, as well as the reasons for which they hold their view. And you can do that so well that when you're done, they'll think you agree with them. Um, but not because you're trying to trick them. <laughs> that would be uncharitable. The reason they think you agree with them is because they're convinced that their view is true. And so when they hear it expressed and explained accurately, it strikes them as true. And if you've listened well and genuinely like, interiorized their view and it's supporting reasons, you can express it back to them accurately and thoughtfully, and it'll ring to, to, true to them. And if it's coming out of your mouth, they might think you believe it. Um, and that, that shows that you listened to another with charity. The person will feel genuinely heard by you. I have, really isn't, I have heard this very thing described as tactical empathy. Have you ever heard that phrase? Yeah, I, I guess that could work. I, I, I guess I a little bit, but, uh, but maybe I'm being oversensitive to the word tactical. Mm -hmm. Because I don't want to set this up as an attack or a war. I, I, it Good really point. does. Yeah, it, I think to, to listen to another attentively is an act of love. Yes. And being heard is to experience being loved. Mm. That's and, nice. It, you yeah. know, isn't it, if, if two people sit down to debate a topic, like we've been talking about abortion, it, it would seem to me that you, if you're not willing to listen to the other side and maybe alter your views or mm -hmm. not necessarily change your fundamental views, but at least be, be changed, be affected by the other person, it's sort of wasted breath. <laughs> and I like yeah. the way you describe listening in such a way that you can state it back to them and that, you know, you're, you're saying, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to consider the things that you're saying. I haven't spent all of my right. time while you were talking working on my pithy little reply. Right. right. Pete, so we're going to take a quick break here on okay. uh, Dr. Doctor and come back for more of you after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and we are very fortunate to have Dr. Pete Colosi with us. We had just finished up uh, explaining uh, charity. The, the charity part of The charity part of the twosome. Now we need to move on to clarity. Right. So clarity means um, you get to give your reasons for your view after you listened, like we just described about charity. And I often joke with the students, I say, after you've succeeded at charity, you may then decimate the other person's view with yours. And they all, they, <laughs> and they all laugh. But, uh, but, but the key point of clarity, and this is really important, is um, you must make sense. Or, I say, at least strive to make sense. So clar clarity is this striving to make sense, which just means that you must give reasons. And the one uh, who just you just listen to will give you the same courtesy of charity. And the reason I say strive to make sense is because we all know, especially from the writing process, but also in talking, it can take time. You know, we oftentimes we have an idea, but to get one's own clear and accurate sort of formulation of that idea and its supporting reasons does, doesn't always come, you know, immediately. So I, I tell the students, just, just try your best to express your reasons. Uh, and you can work on them over, over time. And, and I also tell them, so in this class, after I explain all that, there will be no name calling. Uh, there'll be no, like what they do on the TV shows, sort of barking their views at each other like dogs. You have to listen and make sense. And after I explain all this, there's, there's a sense, I think, of sort of relief on um, the students' faces. They, they feel a certain healthy relief and freedom and even excitement that it's okay to disagree and they'll still be friends. And they're sort of energized by these rules, if you want to call them that, to get a chance to, you know, really win their arguments and mm -hmm. to marshal their arguments and so forth. But that's, that's like actual it. tolerance, isn't it? We're going to agree yeah, to disagree. Yeah, we're going yeah, yeah. to share views, and we may have different views, but I'm not going to shoot you because of your views. I'm going to right. tolerate that you're different. <laughs> it's interesting. Right. I, I sometimes debate with my oldest son, who's a philosophy major. That <laughs> oh, great. If, at, That's great. if at the end of the discussion, the other party is left bloodied, 
that nothing has been accomplished. That uh, we right. haven't we haven't changed right. anyone if we've decimated them, as you say. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So, Pete, when I like what you go ahead. Go ahead. Well, when we're talking about hot button issues like this, oftentimes anger or anxiety gets the best of us. How do you teach your students and how can we help us and our listeners deal with that aspect of things? Okay, that is a great point. And that's actually another part of my Charity and Clarity lecture, dealing with the emotions. And the first thing to note is that both people in a disagreement are going to have those surges of emotions. And it's important to just recognize and validate them because it's part of being human. Yeah. And, and one of the things I tell the students is, look, when you're listening with the charity part and those emotions are bubbling up in you, it's okay. Just let them be there and keep listening charitably. It's not repression because you will be able to express your view and the clarity part. And then I'm still working through this, but I've developed a sort of chart of possible emotion categories that can happen. One would be too little emotion, sort of a listless or languid. And that just means you're not really interested in this person or what they think. So that's no good. And then there's a few types of too much emotion. So one, you're so emotional that it blocks your ability to hear the other person and you don't really listen to them. And as you said before, uh, Chris, you're just waiting to get your your word in. Mm. So that can that type of emotion can sort of blind a person to reality. And oftentimes it's hard to know what's going on in people. It could be rooted in a fear of having done wrong or a fear of ha- having to change one's life or guilt or even trauma. So, But that's a type of emotion that doesn't allow for true charity and clarity. And then there's another emotion, which we already talked about, that sort of burns, like um, the name-calling and the barking at each other. So that's no good. But then the good kind, I would say, is strong passion, which fits with charity and clarity and shows that you actually respect the other person with whom you disagree. And you take them seriously. And that passion should fill you with energy when it comes time to give your view. And and, and it really shows you care about the other, especially if you think they're in error and they see that you're passionate about it, but you're being loving. I think that would help them to give give a second thought to um, what you're saying. So... That's what I'd say about the emotion point. Yeah, it's tough, though. You can, we've all been in those situations, right? At, at about the time you take the first bite at Thanksgiving dinner, uh, <laughs> and you, fi- you find yourself uh, sitting next to someone that disagrees with you from your own family. But yeah, I like the way you said, acknowledge and affirm those emotions and let them, right. let them just take space and be there because mm-hmm. you'll get your chance. Well, Pete, let's move into the specific arena of artificial reproductive technologies. Now, in prepping for the show, you told me the story about where you were giving a talk about the morality of these technologies, and someone in the audience became visibly agitated and then released an outburst of anger at you. Tell our audience what happened and how you handled it. So I was asked to a diocese. I won't name the diocese. It was a diocese, and I was asked to give a weekend seminar to the permanent deacons of the diocese and their wives. And I decided to focus on these sort of hot-button issues, moral theology, philosophy. And I even started with the joy of the gospel of Pope Francis, where he talks about you have to know Jesus, and then your moral life becomes more rich. Um, And so I went through the key points about a series of moral issues, and they all went fine until I got to artificial reproductive technology. I explained it, and then one of the wives who was sitting next to her husband, a permanent deacon, became very angry, as you said, and demanded of me, you have not explained why it's wrong if a married couple uses IVF to have a baby. And she was mad, and her husband was looking away. (laughs) And thankfully, yeah, thankfully there was also in the audience an MD uh, who's a member of the CMA. So between the two of us, we gave her a few answers. Um, uh, But I wasn't expecting that that day, and it showed me, I guess, two things. One is that even Roman Catholic deacons who go through, I think, six years of training uh, before they get ordained don't know the basic things about some Catholic moral teaching. Um, And then I didn't ask her this, and she didn't volunteer it, but, and Chris, you already mentioned this in the first part of the show, um, I concluded sort of in my mind that most likely the explanation for her intense emotion was probably that she has one or or more grandchildren who were um, conceived that way. Right. Uh, that's the first thing I thought you would say when you started started that. We never know what crosses people are bearing, and um, right, right. You know, the tears come, and then we realize we've stepped in it. Right, right. So what are some general 
and specific challenges that we have to overcome if we're discussing, you know, in vitro fertilization with people who support right, it. Right. So I, 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 there's a few, I think, the biggest ones. One is that if you, if you say you're against IVF to someone who's holding their IVF child or grandchild in their arms, you know, it sounds like you mean that that child should not exist. And I want right. to comment on that, that later. Um, but another, a priest told me that he mentioned in a homily off the cuff one day that IVF is immoral. He forgot about it. And then he was at some family home and the grandmother pointed to the baby on the floor and said, why do you hate him? This priest told me that. And he was totally shocked. He mm. forgot about the homily. So that remark, you know, really stuck with um, the grandmother. Another challenge is the suffering of, of infertility. It's a huge cross and it's, and you can't, you have to um, be very gentle with that and validate that too. Um, and then um, maybe the main challenge, I think, on this topic and many of these topics is that the foundation or maybe the catechesis or the philosophical or Catholic anthropology needed for people to grasp that IVF is immoral is, I would say, almost com- completely lacking. People just aren't catechized. Um, so, and that's, I think, why those two experiences of the priest and of the woman who was, was angry at me, they, they didn't have the foundation um, that's needed. Um, and I think we need to, sometimes I think talking about right, getting right to artificial reproductive technology might not be the best way to start. Maybe throughout the liturgical year, the priest could give homilies without mentioning it, but talk about things like self-gift or the meaning of the body or married love to gradually build up a Catholic ethos in parishes. And then they would more naturally understand um, what's wrong. And then just one more challenge. Um, and I think this is a big one. And I include myself in this. Um, I wonder if we really believe and experience how much God loves us <laughs> and that he's infinite. And what I mean by that is he really can forgive anything we've done. And it's the one thing he wants to do more than anything else. Um, you mentioned that at the beginning of the show, Chris, that you were referring patients and then you had some thoughts about that. And and I think when people have a conversion, all of us, from something that we were blind to before, I mean, good, decent people, it's hard to accept that we've done something very bad. Mm. Um, And so I think the only way to talk about, especially this topic, um, is to combine it with God being our Father, and He loves us so much, and one sincere act of contrition and confession just melts His heart. And He's infinite, so He can forgive us. And there's even things for healing, like retreats and things. So I also like to, I like that image that you sort of put forth of, um, you know, we have to take small steps first. And as a, mm-hmm. as a convert, I think about that, you know, and I spend a lot of time because I'm a convert with RCIA groups. And, you mm-hmm. know, I can distinctly remember thinking contraception is a mortal sin. That's Come on, that's that's reaching. Yeah, you didn't have the foundation. Yeah, that's it's too big a pill to swallow. Pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Right off the beginning, but you know things, simple things. You know, you believed the church was capable of infallibly choosing the books of the Bible, so Mm -hmm. that's not so hard to go from that to the next step where the church could do, and Mm -hmm. the next step, and the next thing Mm -hmm. you know you're supportive of this idea of the magisterium, but uh, that takes time and energy and a willingness to, to bring somebody along. Uh, mm-hmm. I like the phrase that God loves you no matter where you are, but he loves you too much to let you sit there. Uh, <laughs> right, gonna... <laughs> exactly. That's a, great one. That's a great one. You know, when I listen to you, the first thing that pops into my head is, is your clarity and charity talk available on youtube or ted talks and if not when will it be i could do that i did i actually (laughs) typed it up because we have these um faculty workshops at the end of the academic year and i they said oh throw in ideas so i threw that in so i actually presented it to a group of faculty and i I typed it up so maybe i will um maybe i'll do that i would i would submit that you'd become a youtube wonder philosopher if uh (laughs) Yeah. Well, <laughs> as time is running away from us, let's get to more of the, the nitty-gritty. You know, how mm-hmm. do we convince people we're talking to about IVF that it's really because we are for something else that we are against that procedure? Right. And here's where the topic becomes very deep. And there, there's a mystery here, which doesn't mean we can't say anything about it, but we, we can't say everything about it, but there's something quite beautiful about why the church is against um, IVF. And I'm going to do my best in the short time, but 
at the end, I hope you'll give me a chance to mention a, v- a video that I do have on YouTube that's an hour long about this topic, full of quotations from the church where I try to, about artificial reproductive technology. Why don't you just tell me, of, us now, where it is? Okay. So it's on the top of my website, which is peterjcolosi.com, but it's also on my Vimeo channel, and there the video is called Catholic Teaching on Artificial Reproductive Technology. Catholic Teaching on Artificial Reproductive Technology. And on YouTube, it's the same video, but I titled it Theology of the Body and Dignitas Personae. Theology of the Body and Dignitas Personae, and that's my YouTube channel. Wonderful. And it's an hour long, and, and, the, and the quotes from the church come up as I read them. It's a professionally recorded one that I gave at a, at a conference. Um, oh. And I will go into it much more than I'll, I'll be able to. Um, so what's here. this but, deep um, mystery that you're referring to? <laughs> so, okay. So, and, and I was going to mention some of the other points, but Chris already mentioned them, that we are also against it because um, abortion is integral to IVF and also the, the, the havoc that it wreaks on the woman's body and so forth and the masturbation and all that. But what the if there was no is, abortion involved? What if there were no snowflake so, babies? Okay. So that's, that's what's called the simple case. So people, and that's why that woman was mad at me. Um, that's the simple case is you try to imagine it's a married couple. The gametes come from the married man and woman. They plan to raise the baby and love the baby. Um, and they don't abort any babies. In fact, Italy made a law because they were so concerned about this, that IVF doctors weren't allowed to create more embryos than they were going to implant. But the problem is then you get the selective reduction issue. But let's say you canceled all that out. Um, in fact, I brought a few quotes, okay, from the church, and one of them, so homologous means the gametes come from the couple. Right. Um, IVF and embryo transfer is not marked by all that, I'm reading quote, um, is not marked by all that ethical negativity found in extraconjugal procreation. The family and marriage continue to constitute the setting for the birth and the upbringing of the children. I'll stop reading. So that's why people think, wait, what's wrong with it? But then th- it continues. It's um, the church remains opposed from the moral point of view to homologous in vitro fertilization. Such fertilization is in itself illicit and in opposition to the dignity of procreation in the conjugal union, even when everything is done to avoid the death of the human embryo. So how do you so explain that to a secular person? Right. Well, and, and that's a good question, whether it can be fully done. But some of the things I think can be explained to a secular person. But I would submit to you, we need to, first of all, explain it to all the Catholic people. Mm, amen. Because they don't know this. Um, so, so, okay, here's, and Chris mentioned this earlier. So there's a distinction between replacing the conjugal act, that's artificial reproductive technology, making a baby in a glass dish, versus using science to assist the healing of the physical yes. problem that's making the couple not be able to get pregnant such that they can have a normal functioning conjugal relations, and then the sperm can reach the egg naturally. That's a fine way to use um, science. Now, why? So I'm going to read one more quote, and then I'm going to comment. Um, so this is from Dignitas Persona. Homologous IVF and embryo transfer is brought about outside the bodies of the couple through the actions of third parties whose competence and technical activity determine the success of the procedure. Such fertilization entrusts the life and identity of the embryo into the power of doctors and biologists and establishes the domination of technology over the origin and destiny of the human person. Such a relationship of domination is in itself contrary to the dignity and equality that must be common to parents and children. Conception in vitro is the result of technical action which presides over fertilization. Such fertilization is neither in fact achieved nor positively willed as the expression and fruit of a specific act of the conjugal union. End quote. That's the mysterious part. So the Catholic Church teaches that every single human being ought to be and actually has the right to be conceived in and because of a specific, loving, conjugal act between his or her married mother and father. And that is the only way to retain, as it said here, this, um, they do, however you get conceived, you have the dignity of the person. But here, this equal dignity between parents and this correct relationship. So here's one way that I try to make this. So, so the mysterious part is... Um, 
somehow, you know how we have the unitive and the procreative dimension? Yes. Yes. The love that is expressed and enriched and experienced and deepened in conjugal relations. In fact, John Paul II says every time the couple participates in conjugal relations, they're somehow participating in God's original act of, of creation out of love from nothing. And so, to put it in a funny way, that love results in a gift. The couple's surprised, actually, when they become pregnant. They didn't actually put the sperm in the egg. The child becomes the fruit, the embodiment of the love of the parents in that act, and it becomes into existence in the midst of that love inside the body of the woman, inside the body of the woman. So here's another way that I try to make this point. And as I said, I really hope, even if people are maybe even getting upset about this show, if they would watch the video first, because I don't have time to do the whole thing. But what I like to distinguish is between the origin of someone and the relationships of that someone with the persons who created them. So the origin means the acts and decisions which were made by people who brought someone into existence. So it's kind of amazing that you and me and everybody once did not exist. We went from non-being to being. Mm -hmm. That's pretty major. Now, God wants, this is a theology point, God wants... We have wants, two minutes left, Pete, just to oh, let you know. shoot. Okay, this is going to be rough. But, um, <laughs> but people come into being through all different ways. They can come into being through rape and incest and so on and so forth. And those people have the full dignity of the person, but their relationship with the people who created them is is broken at the beginning. And one of the things that can help people is in Jesus' genealogy at the beginning of Matthew, there's a rape, there, David to Bathsheba, there's an incest, yes. there's a That's prostitution. Right. So life yes. is messy. But the relationship between children and parents who are brought into being in the way God intended is starting, if you will, on the right foot. But the relationship when um, all these different forms of artificial technology are being used, reduces, if you will, the child to a product. And this is why, even if you asked me before about the simple case, there are really, I mean, Chris can correct me if I'm wrong, I doubt there are actually any simple cases that happen. <laughs> um, and so we are participating in this alteration of humanity's attitude towards each other from a gift to be received to a product. You were talking before the break in the first part, how they have A embryo, B embryo, C embryo. If they save the A embryos and destroy, first of all, ranking people, it's horrific. It's like racism. Um, and, and if they save the A embryos and throw away the B embryos, the A embryos are not killed, but they are violated. They weren't kept because they were a precious, unique person. Right. They were kept because they had a certain trait that the other ones didn't have, and they would have just as well been thrown away. So that's, I mean, in the short two minutes, um, we need to keep this idea that persons are infinitely valuable, and they need to be thought of as a gift to be received, not as a product that can be tweaked or, or thrown away if it's not right or so forth. So, Well, Pete, it, it, feels, it, it feels almost blasphemous, but in the interest of time, I'm going to have to leave okay. it here. But uh, we can't okay. thank you enough for once again coming okay. on Dr. Doctor and helping us with these difficult topics. And I'll tell you, yeah. I'm going to YouTube, and I'm going to watch these <laughs> thank two you, videos. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Pete. God bless you. Okay, we'll be back with guys. the end of the show well, here on Dr. Doctor in just a minute. And we're back with the ending coda to tonight's show, which will begin with the answer to the medical trivia question. And it was simply, children conceived through in vitro fertilization have been discovered as of 2018 to have a medical problem more often than by chance. Now, this has been studied since really 19... Gosh, I've forgotten the year. 70... Louise Brown. Eight, 83. I think, I think 78 is yeah. about right. Everyone wondered, creating these children this way, are they going to be more likely to miscarry, have higher autism rates, all of these things? And so you're going to point out the very first endpoint. Right. And there are studies being done in, in these children and, and some now adults. And uh, the answer to the question is hypertension or high blood pressure. They're more likely to have it. Uh, for instance, they had 52 children and young adults conceived, and eight of the 52 had high blood pressure as adolescents or young adults, which is quite uncommon. And of the control group, same age, sex, 
uh, only one out of 43 had it. So it was statistically uh, and clinically significant. So they had blood pressure over 130, over 80. Of course, the, the new uh, criteria, 120 over 80. Or blood pressure greater than the 95th percentile for their age. So by definition, only two and a half out of those 52 should have had it to be below the 95th percentile or above the 95th percentile, but eight of them were there. So that is the, the first finding right now. Yeah, and, and that's just now. We will keep studying this, and I hope we'll, we'll learn much more about it as time goes on. So we had a good time with Pete Colosi. We, we hope that you're able to listen uh, to his video online by just you searching know, his name. I just love listening to him and picture him this idea of listening so well that you can say the person's position back. I mean, that, that really is a charitable way uh, to listen to someone. Well, and it? it forces us to listen to the other person while not thinking about our response. Right. And I think we all watch too much exciting news shows where it, they're really not debating. They're really just throwing jabs at each other. Neither are listening to the other. Yeah, I stopped watching those years ago because there is no true discussion. And we're entering the political season when there is no debate. It's just sound bites, and truth doesn't matter and understanding doesn't matter. And I, I just love the way that, uh, that Pete presents that. We could, we could all learn from it. Amen. Well, thank you for listening with us on this episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio here in Fort Wayne, Indiana, on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen to past episodes on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts. And be sure to rate those when you listen to them because that helps get us higher Oh, up thank on you, list. Chris, for that reminder. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your question to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at redeemerradio.com doctor where you can also find all our past episodes. Keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app or by following us on Facebook at Dr. Doctor Show.